0: Welcome back everybody to another episode of Outside the Box Conversations and this is a really special conversation today because I have a good friend of mine on on the show. His name is Dr. Mark Ellis. Dr. Mark Ellis, how you doing, man?
1: Hey, awesome. Thanks for the call today. Hey,
0: thank you for getting on. We we this was kind of impromptu, but something that I've been thinking a lot about over the last month or so. Dr. Ellis is with Georgia Chiropractic Neurology Center. And Dr. Ellis, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do.
1: Sure. Well, I uh, started, I don't know, 35 years ago in martial arts and became very interested in movement therapies. And then I went to massage school and then I integrated my martial arts into understanding movement therapies for soft tissue manipulations. And then I went to chiropractic school and I continued to integrate that information. And then I began to study what's called functional neurology or chiropractic neurology. And I began to integrate brain rehab as well. So I've combined uh, these different things. I'm also a founding member of the international fascial research Congress, So I'm working on a lot of current understandings of how the musculoskeletal and fascial system work together with the nervous system and then combining treatments for those as a holistic integration. And uh, we work a lot with different people with paralysis, post-concussive syndromes, vertigo, or any types of pain syndromes as our primary area of focus. And then from there, we branch out quite a bit. You, you do so
0: much. And there's just with that, you know, little intro there, I could go in so many different directions. But for the, for the people who don't know exactly what, you know, uh, chiropractic neurology or functional neurology is, tell us a little bit about that and what the difference between that is and what, you know, most people think about when they go to a chiropractor.
1: Yeah, I think the, the best way is it's, it's a bit of the brainchild of a gentleman named Professor Ted Carrick. And what he did over his career was to go around and learn from people all over the world about brain. And then with his own applications and creativity, he began to develop this different approach to integrating the information. So we take things from different disciplines like vestibular disorders, oculomotor disorders, he would study neurocognitive aspects, and he would begin to look, and, and scientists would study the relationships between different eye movements and different cognitive elements, and we, we know that they're there, and then he would take that information, apply it in his own way, and over the last, say, 45 years, he's been developing this branch in chiropractic that we call chiropractic neurology, but he was really building a lot of notoriety. And we would have neurosurgeons in the classes. We would have physical therapists. So they also put together this functional neurology as well, because the neurosurgeon would be more okay with saying that they have a fellowship in functional neurology. So he really pioneered this whole area. And I was fortunate enough, To work with him Uh, personally I got to be his first assist with many 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 cases and that helped me to evolve this subspecialty uh, that we put together and then I integrated that with my own personal things with the uh, myofascial work and some things which you know you you've seen that on the tennis courts so uh, just my own different way of putting it together is it
0: kind of, cause I, you know, you and I have talked a lot about myosynaptics, which you just mentioned, uh, tell me is myosynaptics and myofascial, is it kind of your own integration between chiropractic neurology and the fascia work that you're, that you've been so uh, involved in, in regards to like the nervous system, et cetera, is that kind of how it works?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I kept integrating different things and I've I teach a lot. I've been teaching for 25 years or so. So I developed my own system called myosynaptics where I really work to show how to integrate myofascial work with brain rehab and how to put those two things together. Uh, and so that that's my own personal art, my own personal system.
0: Can, can you explain it, kind of what myofascial work is because – I. I think that, you know, fascia and working on your fascial system is becoming more and more mainstream. Um, what's your, give us kind of your, uh, you know, one Oh one version, uh, of, yeah. of fascial work.
1: As my one Oh one. So, so the thing is, is that what happened is in the Renaissance, we had a, uh, uh, what would you call it? a an expansion of thought and understanding. And in that, there was a gentleman particularly named Andreas Vassilius. And he made all these pictures of different anatomy. And we finally had the development of the printing press. So he, in the 1515, he became one of the major influences on the understanding of anatomy. And for the last 500 years or so, he's had... The, one of the biggest influences. Well, there was a tissue in the body called fascia that we, we know about very well, but we only looked at it as something that held the muscles together or held the organs in place. And uh, it wasn't highly investigated. Well, there's a group called the Fascial Research Congress, and they're really interesting. There's, there's people in there like yoga instructors or massage therapists but then there's PhDs in endocrinology there's a lot of people researching it in um oncology because the way the cells are moving through the body they're moving in relationship to the fascia and then there's a lot of biomechanical experts so it's this conglomeration of people from all around the world who are looking at this tissue that was previously uh not considered very much and they're saying wow you know all your nerves are embedded in it all your muscles are embedded in it all your organs are embedded in it and it's helping us to get a better understanding of biomechanics immunology and um and psychology because how the how that tissue is doing actually influences your your brain and then your brain influences that tissue so it's uh i think i think that we started about 10 or 12 years ago and uh every few years there's a fascia congress the next one will be uh in montreal in 2022 so we're all looking forward to that but so i take that information as well and, and integrate it with whatever else we're doing and and so um
0: it's just fascinating to me. And I, you know, again, we've known each other for years and uh, I've had the the wonderful opportunity to, to work with you and, and one of your protégés, Jacob Meyer, who, who's having amazing yeah. success on the, on the tennis tour right now. Shout out to Jacob Meyer. I, I hope he's, li- he should be listening to this, Mark.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he will, he will listen to we,
0: it. We, we will make him listen to this, to this episode.
1: Yeah. He's been one of my uh, biggest supporters. He keeps encouraging me because he wants me to, share more and more. And then it's really exciting to see what he's doing with that in the tennis industry. It's and, so and funny. How he's helping it, people.
0: You, you, you know, you've kind of, you know, done your own integrations throughout the years with all this different knowledge. And I, I feel like Jacob's doing the same exact thing, you know, bringing it over into, into tennis and, you know, hopefully other sports as well later on. But uh, but we're we're here to talk a little bit about the brain, Dr. Ellison, and and one thing that, that one of the things that really prompted this phone call was um, you've been seeing some some long hauler COVID uh, in your office, and yeah, quite a, quite a lot. And COVID nineteen has has been so, it's been on the top of uh, everyone's mind. I feel like over the last eighteen months, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the office and how that you know pertains to the brain?
1: Sure. Well, I think that. You know, it was it was just a pretty intense year last year. And what would happen is that people would get COVID, but sometimes they didn't get it so severe that they had to end up in the hospital and their their symptoms seemed maybe even minor, but then they ended up with a sequelae of neurological problems after they got better. And people weren't necessarily understanding what was happening. And they began to call themselves long haulers because they, they were having these problems and uh, weren't getting better. So they would come into the office. And for me, I would uh, I, I just could understand what was happening because the virus impacts your endothelial tissues. So it could impact endothelial tissues in your lungs or your blood vessels like your heart or blood vessels in your brain. But the brain is also derived from that same embryological tissue. So the virus would affect it and then people would lose their sense of smell or lose their sense of taste or lose their ability to move or to walk, uh, to talk. All these different things were happening to people and they didn't have any, any real answers for what to do. But fortunately, we've been able to help a, a large percentage of them.
0: You know, one thing you mentioned that, that I'd love if you could just explain for the listeners, Sequele. I've read about that term a couple different times today, actually. And, and I have no idea what that means. And, and I have a, a feeling that a lot of people listening don't either. Explain what sequele is as well, well. I think it's
1: like... Go ahead. It's like the movie. You know, you watch the first movie and then there's a sequel. Oh. So... <laughs> so. But we have to, in medicine we we got to use it like it has to sound a little cooler. So um, <laughs> the person might get the lung problem and then they get other things with it.
0: Hey, guys, if you're listening on the podcast or watching on YouTube, I apologize. I thought I thought sequelae meant something way more complicated than just sequel. So uh, so we'll move on from that. Hey, we're going live
1: time right now.
0: We're we're not live, man. This we're we're, we're recording this. Uh, we're pre-recording this. Uh, but oh, peop- good. But people will be listening to this on on the podcast. Oh. Shout out to everybody on the podcast if you're taking a walk or working out. Um, okay. But but I'm I'm just you know the the, the long hauler thing. It, the way I understand it, it, it is that it does have so much to do with with the brain. It, what are some things that you're doing in office to help with these people that have? These symptoms.
1: Yeah. For for us, it's it's brain rehab. And I guess to me, I do it every day. So I I'm thinking of a very complex thing as simple, but yes. what you have to do is you have to look at the person as an individual. And that's one of the most important things. Instead of trying to say, well, you fit into this diagnosis or this diagnosis, and here's what we do. You have to look at them as an individual. So first off, we start out and we look at the person as an individual and we we do a neurological exam. And we're looking at what's happening for the person. So if they can't smell, we know that that could be three or four different problems. And you can examine them to try to get an idea of which, which one of those areas is having a hard time or if they can't uh, feel their legs or if they can't move their arms or something like that. So we do the exam. It helps us to triangulate which area of the brain or multiple areas of the brain are having a problem. Interestingly enough, when when you look at something like say a brain tumor, a brain tumor is predominantly gonna affect the area of the brain that it's impacting. And you know from your work in immunology that when you influence something related to chemistry, you can affect numerous areas. So if you look at somebody with a blood sugar problem, they could have problems with their eyes or their feet or their thought processes or decision makings because glucose is important for all the functions in the body. Well, when you look at something like COVID and you have a um, a virus and its impact, it can impact numerous areas of your brain. So it's not just finding out which one area or two areas of the brain are having our time. It could be six, seven, eight, nine. And you have to be able to look at that person individually to figure out what their presentation is.
0: How does a patient know if COVID did, um, impact their brain in a negative way? Like, is there a, is there any other, you know, obviously smell, um, would be a a pretty clear, you know, it's getting, it's gotten to my brain somehow. Is there any other symptoms of like, okay, this could be a neuro problem now?
1: Sure. Well, it's, I mean, if you can't walk, it's probably a neuro problem, even things like digestion are controlled by the brain. Mm. So, um, I guess the doctor maybe has to help the person know, but there's certain things that you would know, like tingling in your body or not being able to walk, or smell, or taste. Those are all for sure brain functions. Um, even if you get something, the people are getting something called POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And we have done a lot of work with POTS patients for years and years. And so they might stand up and their heart rate will spike 30 points. And that's happening to people with COVID. So when you look at it strictly from a cardiology perspective, they'll give them salt or compression pants or exercises. But from a neurological perspective, you go, well, there's parts of the brain that help to regulate your heart rate. And we look at those. And if they're having a difficult time, then we want to do treatments to help. And you know, if they're having a hard time, because you can test reflexes to check it. And if those reflexes are working, then you would say, well, maybe it's chemistry. If they don't work, you would say, well, maybe it's how the nervous system's controlling it.
0: One of the most common symptoms that, that we're seeing is the loss of smell. Um, is there... Is there something that, that you've seen work in terms of, you know, say a patient hasn't been able to get uh, their smell back for, you know, months on end? Is there things that, that people can do or, or, you know, obviously they can come see you guys? What, what's something that you've seen or what, what's something that you do for that?
1: Yeah, I, I don't have home treatments, but I mean, number one is, we, you know, we always look and we try to think, you know, is somebody taking care of their biochemistry? That's always very important. And then what we do is we do things with the nervous system and we have uh, a whole variety of treatments that we do for people who have difficulty with taste and smell and they can be um, somewhat simple sometimes and somewhat complex others. So you have to know what the network is. And then sometimes the, the person won't know it, but if you can get one smell that they can smell, And then you start to get them to smell it and smell it in different contexts. Then you try to do a treatment like um, different eye treatments or head and neck movements. I think, you you know, I think one of the hardest things to understand is one of the things that we do is we might do a movement therapy for a person and try to be working to help them with smell you go, well, what does smell have to do with moving a part of my body? And the, the brain is an integrated system. So any part that you do will affect another. So if you smell a bad smell, it can create, cause you to move. If you smell a good smell, it can cause you to move. So there's integration in the brain between all of your different senses. And when you're looking to restore one of them, you try to figure out what other sense will impact it. And then you try to combine them together. And when you combine two different experiences together, they create a a neurological alteration that we call neuroplasticity. And those those two systems begin to connect and you can use one system to improve the other. Mm. So like one of the classic ones is you might be having an experience with somebody in your life and you really care about them and it's a big emotional experience and a certain song comes on. Well, then for the rest of your life, you equate that experience with that song because your brain actually changed and adapted for that moment in time. So you can use one sensory modality to help improve another sensory modality And the big art is to figure out which one to use and how to use it to help them. And it's it's that's the that's the secret sauce where you really instead of treating somebody with a protocol and just saying, if you lose your smell, here's the four things we do. Right. You treating them as an individual and you say, well, for you, um, you know, a movement therapy doesn't work as well. So instead we're going to use a sound therapy and trying to integrate those in order to restore the proper function. So
0: it's almost like it's almost like feeding off of something that you're doing well or that's working in order to restore a a uh, a missing piece or you know yeah. something that's not working as well.
1: Yeah, and so you kind of have two choices. You can either go to the thing that's not working well and work to strengthen it directly, or you use another system to help boost it, and then work to strengthen it with a combined approach.
0: You know, um, we were on the phone a, a couple of weeks ago, and and you told me that it's acting a lot like um, was it a coma? Is that what you were you're saying to me? A that co- it was concussion. Concussion. Sorry, concussions. A, a, a concussion explain yeah. explain that a, a, a little bit how is it working like a concussion
1: yeah for for me you know it's really kind of interesting because a lot of a lot of the work in concussions were only recently understood maybe in the last 10 years so if you think about uh, if you're more toward my age when you grew up as a kid people didn't worry too much if you got hit in your head and got a little lightheaded on the football field it was just, you just walked it off, just shake it off, just walk it off. Um, but what, what impact did that have on you? Well, now we know that people are getting concussions. So now if a football player gets hit, they have to go and get an exam right on the sideline to see if they got a concussion. And then there's all these return to play protocols. And, you know, we're learning that people who are getting concussions end up with different problems. And the problems they end up with can be like double vision, blurry vision. Sometimes they have loss of smell, which isn't as frequent as people with COVID. But they'll have uh, balance problems, difficulty moving, uh, difficulty with cognition, neck pain, head pain, these different things. So what happens is that's just because your brain got injured and anytime your brain gets an injury you're going to have a manifestation of certain symptoms uh time's not the best word but frequently when your brain gets injured you'll have a manifestation of symptoms so that's like a physical injury that causes a chemical problem well and then and then that ends up causing a problem with the brain Well, COVID is just a viral injury that's causing a chemical problem and then causing a problem with the brain. And it tends to present a little bit in its own unique way, um, but that happens. For instance, there's certain viruses that seem to impact your inner ear a little bit more. And when that happens, people will get dizzy and they'll get ringing in their ear and they'll go, well, you have either a bacterial labyrinthitis or a viral labyrinthitis And then depending on which one you have, people will treat it with antibiotics or something. So it it just has a predilection for your ear. One of the nerves that goes up to your eye to move your eye outward, that nerve is particularly sensitive to viral infections for some reason, whatever it is. So different parts of our brain and bodies are more susceptible to different things. So with COVID, it seems to be impacting people's brains in this certain way where they're not able to walk or move or, or smell and all that. And, but it's similar to me to a concussion. It just has its own unique, um, presentation.
0: So like, you know, when I think of concussions and playing football, I think, okay, well maybe it's a bad idea to play football, uh, (laughs) from a, from a brain injury standpoint, what are some things or have you noticed anything that that people can do from a preventative standpoint so that, you know, COVID doesn't impact the brain or or are you thinking or seeing that it's completely random?
1: Well, I don't know that it's random. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, that's a hot topic right there because nobody's, nobody's talking about prevention. I don't, well, I mean, of course, we're talking about prevention. So social distancing, wearing masks, getting, um, vaccines, all all of these types of things. But interestingly enough, I've heard very little about things that are good to keep your immune system functioning, like eating fruits and vegetables and exercising and all this. And I think that if I were to guess, because we don't have research on it, the good prevention things are to work to keep your immune system as healthy as you can to try to defend against the virus. Uh, also is to look ahead of time. I've seen a lot of people where they've had some imbalances within their nervous system. Like maybe they came to me for headaches or neck pain or something. And and we fix it. And I say, hey, you also have some of these other um, problems. Would you like us to help you with them? And they'll say, well, no. I go, okay. You know, that's fine. And then That Something happens like they get hit in the head and they get a concussion or they get um, a viral infection or something. And what part of the brain does it affect? Well, it affects the part that was the weak link. And so the prevention would have been to be as healthy as you could be to hopefully not have the weak link. So uh, I think that if they had got that better, they would have had a better chance that they would not have been hurt. So um, it, you know, if you're smoking cigarettes and, you know, you don't want to get COVID, you should probably, it's good to not smoke cigarettes. You, you know, you're, that's your prevention.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned earlier is, is the gut. And, you know, when I think of, you know, some of the, so the immune system, when I think of, you know, the gut brain relationship, um, I would imagine that, you know, keeping a healthy gut would also be, you know, a very preventative Uh, action that so many people could take, Um, you know, the gut brain relationship better than most. Can you kind of explain that for people?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, the idea behind that is the gut has endothelial tissue. The brain has endothelial tissue and there's a blood brain barrier that works to keep the chemicals that are in your blood from getting to your brain. And it works to allow certain chemicals that are in your blood into your brain so that it keeps this optimal balance between your body and your brain for function. So there's certain chemicals that you need in your body, but you don't necessarily want them in your brain. And the blood-brain barrier helps to do that. Well, what what we're seeing is that if you get inflammation in your gut, you can get inflammation in the blood-brain barrier and you break down your... Um, like gut blood barrier. So they talk about leaky um, leaky gut, right? And the idea is that the chemicals, you have these bonds in there called zonulin bonds and they break apart and the gaps between your your intestines and your blood get a little too big. And what we think is that chemicals start coming through that shouldn't come through. And then that causes inflammation in your body. And again, it's sort of the same. What part of your body will that inflammation affect? Well, some people it looks like it affects their joints and they might have an arthritis. Some people it affects their thyroid and they might have a thyroiditis. Some people it can affect uh, blood vessels and things. So then when that begins to happen and you begin to get into an inflammatory state, that inflammation can also affect your brain. I think the easiest uh, I, idea is, you know, sometimes if you get the flu or you eat something bad, you feel sluggish mentally and physically. So they're interrelated. And I mean, you guys do a lot of work with the gut. And you, I'm sure you see how sometimes people think that's not related to your gut. But when you get their gut healthier, they feel better, right? Right. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's just fascinating to me. And and I think that, you know, this w- with everything that's happening with long hauler COVID and COVID in general, I think people are realizing, like you said, the importance of keeping your immune system strong. And, you know, I, I, I hope that people are starting to realize how much of your immune system is determined by your gut health. You know, I think there's a large percentage of your immune system that's actually in your gut. Is that, isn't that yeah. right? something like that?
1: Yeah, well. I mean there's there's from what I hear, there's more bacterial cells from gut bacteria than you actually have cells in your own body. So what we call your gut flora is very important. There's um, neuropsychiatric impacts that are pretty well studied related to gut flora. So there's actually medical treatments where, I mean, it's not the coolest word to say, but they do fecal transplants where they, where they get the gut bacteria from one person and give it to the other and their depression goes away. So there's still a lot that we're learning about it. And, and we really, I think we really learned about DNA in the seventies. Um, and then I think our first genetically based disease that we understood was, was, um, cystic fibrosis, I believe in about 1989. Hmm. So we're still so new at it. And then from there, we started to understand the immune system better. So we're still in such the beginning of of our understanding of science. And yeah, I mean, your gut function impacts so many other areas of your life and then your brain impacts your gut function. And so that's that gut brain axis or brain gut axis, and it keeps you uh, keeps you healthy.
0: So is it is it fair to say that so your gut impacts your brain and your brain impacts your gut, or is it? Yes. Okay, so it's yeah. both.
1: Yeah, yeah. We like we like to put things in 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 like one thing affects another, but the reality is they're all inter they're all interrelated. Yeah. So, um, yeah, your gut will affect your brain, particularly uh, the nerves in your gut have very powerful impacts on parts of your brain for your limbic system, like your amygdala and things. And then your brain through your nerve called the vagus nerve, it goes down and it keeps your gut functioning and your intestines and organs healthy. So those have huge, huge inner relationships. They actually, you actually, the the blood flow through your organs and how your organs are positioned actually help to tell you if you're upright. They contribute to telling you if you're upright or not. So people's organs can get shifted out of place and that can actually impact uh, how they feel.
0: You know, it's interesting. Dr. Rogers wrote a, uh, an article this morning about long hauler, and, and, uh, and he mentioned in there that COVID is a multi-organ disease. And, and that's what's just so fascinating to me is how it's affecting all your organs, essentially. And, and, and that's really where the, the, the personalized approach that you're talking about comes into play, because, you know, it, it can affect all of them. And it just, you know, it's, it affects different people in different ways. Isn't that fascinating?
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it seems to be affecting t- tissues that come from your ectoderm and, and like your endothelium. Although that's like skin. You think of the skin on the outside of your body, but you have skin around all your organs. And then just depending, I think, on that person's genetics sort of shows like why does one person, it impacts their lungs and another person and more impacts their vestibular system and another person it more impacts their nervous system. And I think that's probably just because of their personal genetics and life experiences that what how they went through. Um, but they all have that inner relationship to to the endothelium or to the ectoderm, I think that's how I'm looking at it.
0: Is the skin I thought the fascial system was, was also around is the fascial system around your muscles and then the endothelial is around your organs?
1: Yeah. So the fascia we look at as going around basically every single cell in your body. Okay. So when we look at fascia, we go, well, it goes around every single cell and then different parts of your fascia that we've We've made different names. As we were studying the body, we had to make a name. So we named it something. But it, it's, it's like the brain. We have, In the brain, we have different parts. We have like a frontal lobe. And we say, well, that, that deals with your cognition, per se. And smell, there's smell in here. And then we have a parietal lobe. And that's spatial awareness. An occipital lobe. And that's vision. But actually, those lobes that we named are a little bit man-made. If you flatten them all out, they're all completely interconnected. And depending on what your life experiences were, they can do different things. So if you're born blind, this area, your occipital lobe that has a predilection for vision, it instead of becoming an area for vision, it can have a better awareness for touch or for sound or for smell. And so that's why we go, oh, man, blind people can hear things really good or something Mm -hmm. Well, they're using more of their brain for it. So what ends up happening is the fascia is interconnected everywhere and we have different names for it, but it's going around every cell in your body.
0: And what is the, what is the skin around your organs that, that is the genetics? Is that the, the endothelial thing?
1: Yeah. Inside your organs, you'll have endothelial tissue and then you'll have like mucous membranes around it. So for instance, the stomach will have this mucous membrane over the endothelium. And then the mucus is produced more by your parasympathetic nervous system. So if you're in a lot of stress and anxiety, then your sympathetics fire higher, your parasympathetics fire lower. And the theory is you make less mucus, then the acid in your stomach can start to eat into your stomach linings and you get uh, ulcers and things like that. So then they give you an antacid to help you to not have that. But I would assume in your practice, you guys work to get the mucus to come back and to get the stomach more healthy.
0: Sure. <laughs> definitely, yeah. T- definitely.
1: Yeah. So uh, just different approaches.
0: Yeah. I, even just hearing you talk about this, which... You, you know, it just shows you how interconnected everything in our bodies are, and how you have to. It's just making the neuroplasticity piece even more important because you can build off these different pieces that work better for you based on life experiences or genetics.
1: Yeah, I was just listening. I think the guy was a Harvard professor, and I was listening to one of his one of his talks on the history of medicine, and and he was going through. The history of medicine and you know there was a thing it was called the germ theory well the reason it was a germ theory was because at the time they didn't actually know there were germs and so then medicine evolved and when we got microscopes we found that there were germs well when we when we had the age of reason and we started to look at science we started to work to quantify things in and break them down and label them And that was just in the late and mid and later 1800s. Well, now that we're learning more and we're getting better and better, it's almost like we're going back to this holistic paradigm Mm -hmm. that now that we broke a system down and we studied it well, we went, oh, wow, system A is related very importantly to system B. So we go, well, man, your liver makes all these hormones. They're all being made in the liver. And so when you look at a hormonal imbalance, if you don't look at the liver, then, you know, you're, you're missing out. So now in medicine, they're getting better and better understandings and we're becoming more holistic again. And instead of just being a specialist in your one area, we're working to understand the body as a whole. And I think over the next who knows 10 or 15 years, there's going to be more and more and more doctors who are integrative as opposed to just a specialist.
0: Well, I, I think I think that's the most exciting thing. You know, COVID obviously has been tragic, and it's been just the you know awful. But I, I think it's really it's opened up our eyes in a lot of different ways, um, and I think it's going to change, you know, our medical system, you know, probably drastically, and it's also going to change, you know, the way people see their own health. Um, you know, going back to you know, the immune system and, you know, what you were talking about earlier, just with functional type stuff. You know, I think, I I think you're right. I think we're going to go back to, you know, a more holistic type approach, even from a patient standpoint, as well as a, you know, provider doctor standpoint. Is that kind of what you're
1: saying? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And it takes time to change a, a whole profession, right? Sure. So, I think over time, but we see it more and more. I remember in the, in the eighties, some of the doctors who were a little more holistic, you know, they were almost, they, people thought they were kind of crazy. And now integrative medicine and integrative doctors and integrative chiropractic, you know, it's happening all over the place. Uh, People are looking to drink clean water and clean food. And I mean, we are just understanding it better. And as that goes, science will, move along with it. And then the universities will continue to improve their education. And I think we'll, we'll just keep getting, we'll get better at what we're doing. Um,
0: what comes to mind when you're, when you're saying that is like, do you think it's going to be more and more difficult or easy in terms of, it feels harder to do all these these things in a modern world, you know, our, our foods, not as good as it used to be, you know, in the fifties. So, you know, eating well is more difficult yet our knowledge and understanding of science is becoming so much better. So we're starting to realize the importance of, you know, nutrition, for example, and things of that nature, but it's also becoming more difficult to eat. Well, do you, like, where, where do you see that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think what's happening now is the public's more aware of it. So, I remember, uh, well, it was probably 1989, 1990, my high school teacher, he was talking about water toxicity and all this. So I audited his college class. And, you know, he was a weird guy. And he was talking about <laughs> waters. There's toxins in water. And you want to filter your water. And you want clean water. And, uh, and so, but now, if you, Coca-Cola makes clean water. So if you if you go to Publix, there's organic food and all, all these options. But and we have we have so much access to information. I mean, I was watching a Netflix special on salmon. And so all this information's flooding in and, and we're realizing better that there's toxicity in our environment and that's really stressful and we're realizing that we we can't get away from that toxicity. So whereas I think in the 80s, you know, I'd be playing football and the football field was around the cornfield and the plane would come down (laughs) and drop the poison on the cornfield while we were practicing on the football. I don't think they would allow that today. No. (laughs) Um, My wife, she was she grew up in farms in the DDT trucks would come through and they would make fog and she would go behind them and play where they were putting DDT out to keep the crops healthy. But well, they don't allow that anymore. So I think one of the big things that's happening is we're, we're stressed out because we're informed of the toxicity, but that's also promoting new science and new training and, And, you know, we're just we're in a group where we went from the 80s. I mean, we're in an interesting transition. We didn't have cell phones. So now we're learning about all this and people are working harder and harder and harder to to try to solve the problem. So, I mean, we really, you know, I don't know when you grow up, but we we really we talked about environments in the 60s, but not not as much. I don't think I mean, we had we fixed a lot of the problems with the industrial revolution and the toxicity from the industrial revolution. Um, and so now we're just working at it at a whole new level. And I, you know, we have to figure out how to solve it Yeah, it might I, happen in our lifetimes.
0: But you're right though, in the sense that, you know, everybody's becoming, or the public in general is becoming uh, much more aware uh, of all these things. And that has to, you know, push Industry to you know be better uh, in, in many regards, you know make better food, et cetera. But it starts with with you know people getting educated, and I think you know that's really the purpose behind podcasts like these and and conversations like the ones that uh, that we're having today. You know, in, in terms of like get this information out, whether it's you know about you know gut health or taking vitamins or eating better or you know learning about the fascial system. Um, you know, we're just hopeful that you know, the, that people are uh, consuming some of this uh, educational content.
1: Yeah. You know, you know, it used to be, if you just look at, at books, you know, it used to be that like monks would write the book and they could make five or eight a year copies. And then we got the printing press. You could make hundreds. Now I could type something up, upload it into Amazon, turn it into a, ebook and and have a million of them so information's moving so much faster so much faster and and
0: and i think that's going to be for i think that's going to be for good you know because that means there's it's going to push people to to continue to improve and uh and people are consuming it so i'm excited it sounds like you're excited about it as well
1: yeah i stay i stay pretty excited (laughs)
0: well well, dr ellis i i want to be you know respectful of your time I, i i can't tell you how much i appreciate you getting on the show with me today and having this conversation it's been such a blast for me
1: ah thank you so much it's always always fun i can't wait to hear back down in atlanta or i end up up north there to see you so
0: Well, well tell us real quick for the people who you know who know they have long hauler syndrome or suspect that they might how are some ways that they can reach out to you and your team and uh and and get down to atlanta
1: Sure. Well, um, we have the website I put up here, healthybrainnow.com. You can give us a call. For One of the things that we like to do for people is, is, as we were talking about, there's so much information that it becomes stressful. Like You go into these uh, groups and they go, well, I did this and it helped and I did that and it helped. And you're just trying whatever you can try to uh, find help for yourself so one of the things that we like to do as much as we can is if you want we can just have a, a consult on the phone and we let you know oh do we think that you know we're a place that can help you and so we always offer a free consult and try to try to help people and then uh, they just come in I actually I put my office I think I got like eight hotels in the area so because we have so many people we used to have a lot of people come in internationally and then COVID happened um but uh, and now now people are starting to travel again so they just come down and and we work to help them get better if for some reason i know somebody in their area i will tell them right away i don't i only have a few people that I tend to refer to, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so you know, we let them know the best we can, and uh, see see how we can help.
0: Well, guys, I I, I encourage everybody who's listening right now, please. Take him up on that. That is that is amazing that they're doing these phone consults to see how they can help you guys. Uh, I'm going to link everything that Dr. Ellis just mentioned in the show notes today, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, or on YouTube, uh, so you can find healthybrainnow.com and phone numbers, et cetera, so that you can take advantage of that. Dr. Ellis, ma'am, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, and, and I, I hope that we can do this again.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Guys, this has been Outside the Box Conversations. I am your host, Ben Rogers, and as always, we will see you guys next time.
1: Don't go away.